Please be seated. Is Christianity, Christianity too narrow? That's the question that we'll be exploring this morning. If this is your first time with us, or if you haven't been with us uh, in, in a while, we are in the middle of a series that is entitled Explore God. We, along with 30 other churches in town, are looking at a handful, or handful plus, seven core questions that are almost universally asked. We've already considered uh, the question, does life have a purpose? Another question was, is there a God? And last week we asked the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? And this morning we move on from that and ask the question, is Christianity the distinct faith that we proclaim? Is it too narrow? And to look at that question, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. You might also want to put your finger in Matthew. We'll be looking at a couple of passages uh, in Matthew, Matthew 7, Matthew 11, Matthew uh, 19 this morning. While you're turning there, we will show our introduction video, or as it indicates on its own, is it's our bumper video, which just seems so inappropriate, doesn't it? But we're going to bump before we uh, bump into the text, so... I think I'd be ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is. It's just what I believe it is. Some people that I've met, it's just, I've had friends and, and the minute they find out about me or the minute that I, I do anything that doesn't follow their religion, I'm, they don't want anything to do with me. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that can come out of it. And I'm not sure if it's from religion that the bad or the good comes out of it or whether it's the people. I respect a lot of faiths and I think that Christianity is a pillar that's influenced by the other great religions in the world. La cristianidad es muy importante porque podemos aprender valores cristianos donde no podemos, uh, donde descubrimos más acerca de nosotros. My view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that there's no one truth about anything. I think that a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. Christianity too narrow. So we begin to explore that question. I invite you to turn to John chapter 14. For the sake of context, we'll be again reading in verse 1. Uh, the context, overarching context, is this is Passion Week. Jesus has been teaching explicitly about himself in a variety of ways in Jerusalem. And here are these words from, that he declares. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to, pre to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you 
that you have revealed yourself in the person of Christ, that we may know what you are like, that we may know the way to you. And yet there are so many things that we do not know, so many questions that we have. Lord, I pray that by your spirit this morning that you would resolve at least this one question for each of us in our own minds as well as our hearts as to whether the idea that Jesus is an exclusive way is too narrow to be true or whether it is the reason for hope and celebration and exaltation of the name that you have declared is above every name. Father, speak to us by your word and by your spirit that we may rest in our assurance. We pray this to your glory and for our peace and joy in Christ. Amen. Is Christianity too narrow? There's something about narrowness that makes us uncomfortable. I found this article in the Dallas Morning News. It's an old article. Uh, and, but listen to uh, the, the imagery that is presented here. In the Strait of Magellan and farther south in the frigid waters around Cape Horn lie sunken wrecks of hundreds of vessels. These ships fell afoul of the southern coast, numerous rocks and sandbanks. Its violent storms and sudden winds shift or were lost in clashes with enemy warships. Thousands of sailors from the U.S., Great Britain, Germany, Scandinavia, and France ended their lives in this treacherous passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans. For 300 years, until the opening of the Panama Canal in 1914, the icy tip of South America was the only bridge between the Atlantic and the Pacific. It was one of the most dangerous sea passages in the world, and captains who made the voyage were dubbed albatrosses after the great birds of the Southern Ocean. Sailors referred to the Cape as the Widowmaker or Cape Stiff. The east-west passage around the Cape is, is deadliest for sailing vessels. The strait is approximately 350 miles long and only 1.2 miles wide at its narrowest points. The prevailing winds are head-on from, uh, from uh, the west and gather terrific forces as they cross uh, the Indian and Pacific Oceans. By the time winds whip around uh, the funnel between South America and Antarctica, they can reach speeds of 100 miles per hour. The clash of the warm air from Chile and the freezing winds from Antarctica also unleash almost daily squalls, blizzards, hailstorms, and ice storms. And until the arrival of the steam-powered ship in 1840, few ships attempted to navigate the poorly charted narrow strait, choosing instead to brave the often deadly gales and towering waves around the more open Cape Horn. So that caught my attention, the imagery there of the ships that were knowing that one way or the other they were sailing through difficult, uh, difficult waters. In one sense, we use that imagery often about our lives, that we are sailing uh, in, in life, and in this life we sail through difficult waters one way or the other. But particularly, it was of interest to me was the fact that the two options that were before the sailors in those ancient days were to go through a very narrow channel or to go through a wider, known dangerous open waters. 
And most of the sailors would take their chances on the open waters rather than going through this narrow, unchartered channel that we call the Magellan Strait. And I found that to be a tremendous metaphor for what we are exploring here this morning. Because the reason that this question is pervasive in our culture and in our world and in all of humanity is because we all are sailing through life and we are faced with a choice. Is there a wide way that would seem safe and yet we find that no matter what way we go, there are always dangers? Is there a narrow way that would be quicker and better? And while the answer is yes, there is something about narrowness that makes us incredibly uncomfortable. Now, neither of the choices were safe. One is more direct. One leads where you want to go. And people were afraid of it. There's something about narrowness that makes us uncomfortable. In our culture, when something is, to be, is considered to be narrow, it almost always carries some negative connotations, doesn't it? To be thought to be narrow or to be accused of being narrow is to thought to be small and squished and tight and cramped and perhaps even dangerous. And to have a narrow perspective is never good. And yet we are faced with this question because Christianity makes very definite claims. And the question that we have before us is Christianity narrow. And I think that as we approach this, and we need to be honest, and the reality is Christianity is narrow. In fact, it is incredibly narrow. That's the claim that Jesus himself was making in the text that we read. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The word the there is an indication that there is a narrowness, there is a restriction, there is an exclusivity. He is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And there's no way around that. There's no other way to describe that, that that is an incredibly narrow statement. And it's one that makes people uncomfortable. In fact, it makes some people chafe at the idea of the exclusivity, the narrowness, the only one way. There are many ways it would seem. Why would somebody declare that theirs is the only way? And why would people agree and submit to the idea that there is only one way? Well, perhaps one reason is because sometimes there is only one way. If somebody was to ask, how do I get to Richmond from here? I might tell you to get on I-64. And inevitably, somebody who's not from here would ask, well, which way? What if I said, just get on I-64? It doesn't matter. All roads lead to the same place, same destination. Well, we recognize the futility of that, and even the person who's not from around here, perhaps especially the person who's not from around here, would recognize that that is a, a foolish statement because all roads both lead to and all roads would lead away from the destination. Now, of course, that illustration has some great flaws for those of us who are from around here. First of all, we do know that there are other ways that you can get to Richmond, and second of all, anybody who's around here knows that you can get on I-64, and you're not going anywhere in either direction. But... Um, <laughs> But you get the whole point. Is that just because somebody is restrictive in their declaration that this is the way that you must go, we understand from different aspects of our lives that sometimes 
there is a narrowness. There are restrictions that define the course that we take. And so we have to take Jesus' claims as he is the only way and consider whether or not his claim is sort of like that. It's not just one general way, but he is claiming that you must follow some level of restriction, the exclusive claim that he is making of himself. And yet I recognize that that's not a satisfactory answer for some. And it's not just because we have reservations about the philosophical claim of Jesus being the exclusive way. Most of us have difficulty wrestling or embracing this claim that he makes of exclusivity on relational basis as well. Most of us have friends who uh, are uh, practicing uh, some other religion or no religion at all, who have beliefs that are far different from our own. And it's difficult for us to think that the road that they are on is leading them away from God, leading them to destruction. And that opens us to the idea that somehow there must be some other way. And that is a mindset that prevails within our culture. A culture that doesn't like to define anything except for the broadness. Listen to one of the, the insight from one of our cultural sages, Oprah Winfrey. One of the biggest mistakes that we make is to believe that there is only one way. There are many diverse paths to God. And so she's making one claim and Jesus is saying there's only one path to God. Jesus is singing a different song than Oprah is singing for our culture. And he sings it often. And he sings it loudly. Because a lot of the teaching throughout his ministry emphasized the exclusivity, the, the narrowness of the way that we can experience reconciliation with God. Consider what he says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus himself is answering the question for us, is Christianity narrow? And he's saying, the way is narrow, the gate is narrow. He says elsewhere, I'm the gate and the gate is narrow. Most people would prefer to take the broader road. We don't like the narrow roads. We like the broader, safer, seemingly safer roads. But the way is narrow. And so serious is Jesus about the narrowness of Christianity that as he's teaching later in Matthew 19, he reflects that truth with a colorful metaphor. Matthew 19, verses 23 and through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
Now, it's an illustration that is familiar for many people. It actually is known not only by those who are Bible students, but it's made its way into our cultural lexicon, the idea of the eye of a needle. We, we talk about that in, in any number of areas. When anything is uh, in a tight situation, that phrase may be brought in, and it refers back to this particular passage that introduces uh, the, the phrase to us. And what's interesting here is that uh, people have wrestled with this passage for a, a number of years in a, in a number of different ways, almost always trying to minimize the narrowness that Jesus seems to be indicating here. First of all, the idea of relativizing what is rich, and so does that mean only for the rich people, and some would uh, uh, culturally um, suppose that there are nobody wealthy, so, but most people are not. Some people who are, have been blessed, who are wealthy, would, uh, would claim that wealth is, there's always somebody wealthier. But the actual Greek translation here, rather than rich, is those who are well off. And while we generally attribute that to finances, there's any number of ways in which we can be well off. But basically, those who have experienced blessing in this life, those who are comfortable in this life, those are the people that he's talking about. Whatever it is, is going to bring comfort and security that we seem to have by the provision of God, and we're not looking for, therefore, by the deliverance of God. Those are the people that he's speaking about. And then the idea that it's with great difficulty is better translated is practically impossible. Because that was the stunning thing for the disciples. It was a clear paradigm shift because they're listening to him teach, and they're astonished. Now, part of that is because they believed, as seemingly many in our culture believe, is that wealth was an indicator of God's blessing. So if the wealthy people, if the ones that God had blessed can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then who was able to get in? But even more, they were amazed at the impossibility of the imagery that Jesus was teaching that a camel would get through the eye of a needle. Now, other people have trained, tried to minimize that, in, uh, the, the, the narrowness there, by claiming that what really was that is we're not talking about a, a sewing needle, and we're not talking about uh, a, a camel, but, or maybe we're talking about a camel, but the, they were talking about it would be a, a camel that would have to get on its knees to crawl through a low-hanging gate that was in the Jerusalem wall. Here what some Bible scholars say about the idea of the camel doing something that was difficult, but not practically impossible. Craig Blumberg says this, there is no solid historical evidence to support the legend that a narrow gate in the Jerusalem wall was called the needle's eye. Frederick Dale Bruner, the fiction of a gate in Jerusalem called the needle eye, since no such gate exists, is first found in the medieval days and lives on in countless sermons. Knox Chamblin was one of my professors at Reformed Seminary, challenges us in this way, but also I think encourages us. We must not weaken the powerful imagery of verse 24 by imagining that Jesus is speaking of a small gate in the Jerusalem wall. It is the image's hyperbole that provides its power as the largest beast of burden in Palestine, the camel made a good figure. And as the smallest opening in a familiar object, the needle's eye made an equally good figure. And then Chamblin cites another Bible scholar, Robert Gundry, who notes that giving the name needle's eye to a small gate probably arose out of the present saying. In other words, 
or, or, uh, what we talk about as a needle's eye came out of Jesus' statement, not out of the physical existence of a particular gate. And what Chamberlain finishes by saying is this, Jesus is speaking of something that is humanly impossible. In other words, Jesus has every intention of saying the way is narrow. And it is more narrow than you can imagine, and it's more narrow than you're comfortable thinking about and imagining. To a point that even those who had walked with him for three years heard his teaching, the exclusivity of it, they could not comprehend. And when he speaks of how narrow Christianity is, his disciples are amazed and saying, who can, who can benefit? Who, who can get into the kingdom of God? There's a power in that picture that makes us now open to the claim that Jesus makes associated with this. With man, it's impossible. But nothing is impossible for God. See, the narrowness of Jesus' exclusive claim brings us to the point where we have to give up on all of our own ideas, all of our own striving, and turn to God and hope in him that he is one who will deliver, who will do what we cannot do which is to bring us any through such narrowness. And so those who would be Christians need to be honest. Christianity is not just narrow, it is incredibly narrow. It is offensively narrow. But we also need to recognize that's not our question today. The question before us is, is Christianity too narrow? We must acknowledge the reality of the narrowness because it's in the narrowness that we find the benefit. But the question we have to wrestle with this morning is, is it too narrow? And the word too makes a huge difference. And I would answer this by saying Christianity, while being incredibly narrow, is not too narrow. And I want to give you a few reasons why I believe that to be true. The first one is that in the exclusivity of Jesus' claims that we read in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is an incredible openness to the entirety of the world. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says in explaining this passage. The East has perennially longed for the way, the towel. The West for the truth, Veritas. And the whole world, North, South, East, and West, has been longing for real life. And Jesus, in making his exclusive claim that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he is saying that it is incredibly narrow. No one comes to God except for through him. 
but he is offering himself in his person to being the answer of the longing of the whole world. Of the East, he's the way. Of the West, he's the truth. Of the entirety of humanity from every generation, he is the life that we are seeking. He's not only the ticket and the pathway to it, it is found in him and in his person, and he's offering himself out there. The second that goes along with that is that the gospel, while being incredibly narrow in the person of Jesus Christ, that he must be the way, the truth, and the life, that he who is God has come into the flesh and has offered himself through the sacrifice on the cross for those who would believe. And yet this same Jesus declares in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you recognize the qualifications there? The one who has been very clear on the narrowness of the way that we are able to be reconciled with God and the way that we are able to have life and that we must believe in him only, he offers himself as an invitation, and here's the qualifications. If you're somebody who has to work through this life, if you're somebody who struggles at all in this life, you qualify to be able to be received by Jesus if you will accept him for who he is. That is an incredibly wide invitation. There is nobody excluded from the invitation of God except for the one who in their own pride will not accept the invitation to receive Jesus. When I was growing up, my mother was a, a, a nurse uh, and a, was a, had an opportunity to be a private nurse for a family named Pitcairn in suburban Philadelphia. They were an incredibly, incredibly wealthy family. Uh, they owned Pittsburgh paints, Pittsburgh plate glass, Pittsburgh everything. I don't know how they ended up in Philadelphia, but they owned pretty much half of Pittsburgh, it seems. And they lived in a, an incredible castle in an area known as Bernathan outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs and the eastern, northeastern suburbs. My mother was uh, the private nurse. And at one time, I guess, I don't know how the context, how the conversation came up, but my mother was pondering something that Mrs. Pitcairn had said, which is that there is, that, that there is nobody who is excluded from heaven except for those who want to be. In other words, taking this claim of Jesus as anybody who qualifies, who struggles, who's had struggles, who's difficulty in this life, Jesus says, come to me. Now, some people like the idea of heaven, but they don't want to come through Jesus. But it's not Jesus' lack of invitation extended to the people to give them the opportunity to come. The issue is they consider the gate to be too narrow. They, like the sailors of ancient days who would look at the Strait of Magellan that would take them through, or look at the wider, more dangerous perils of going around the Cape Horn, they would say, we'll take the wider way It's more just because we don't like the looks of this narrow way. And therefore, they made the choice. There's nobody that is excluded from heaven except for the one who will not accept Jesus, will not receive the invitation that Jesus is, is coming. Third is that the narrowness of the gospel contextualizes to every culture. In other words, the gospel remains the same. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. The God who has loved the world has sent his own son into, the, into this world to assume upon himself our sin and our misery to pay the debt that we owe in order that we might be relieved of our debt, that God's justice and his holiness, his righteousness would be preserved. That message declared to any culture 
becomes a seed that then blossoms. Unlike every other world religion that requires you to adopt a particular external culture, whether it's an ancient Middle Eastern culture, whether it's an ancient Eastern culture, whether it is a Western culture, whether it, it, every other faith requires you to embrace some external culture. The gospel itself fits, transforms, and brings beauty out of every culture unlike any other. It doesn't try to fit everyone into one whole, but this narrow seed of truth blossoms in different ways. Finally, perhaps to me most convincing is this. Is that the paradox of Orthodox Christianity is this, that when properly practiced, the, it becomes the most inclusive, exclusive community that you will ever find. Let me say that again. When properly understood and properly practiced, and the gospel bears fruit. Christianity becomes the most inclusive, exclusive community you will ever find. We can't eliminate the narrowness, the exclusivity of the claims that Jesus made without Christianity being robbed of its own heart and therefore becoming just another form of deadness. But the power of the gospel in the hearts of those that Jesus has called to himself and who belong to him begins bearing fruit in the lives of the people and creates a people who are open to others, who are commanded to be open to others, who are commanded to love others. The gospel requires that we love one another, you know, those of us who are on the inside, But then the gospel also does something that no other religion does. It requires you to love your neighbor, including those who are the unlovable, including those who think differently than you, including those who actually are hostile to you and to me and to Jesus. Jesus says, how are my people, answers the question, how are my people supposed to relate to the ones who hate me? Love them. And when you consider the reality of the narrowness of the claims of Jesus Christ that produces a beauty that is that wide open, that says that you are to love and embrace and welcome everyone, including the ones who hate you, we see the beautiful paradox that, to me, seems like it could only come from the mind of God, which is that while we in no way minimize the narrowness of Christianity, it creates an incredible, inclusive community. So we're left to ask this question. Is Christianity too narrow? Christianity is certainly narrow and we must never compromise on the narrowness. The narrow exclusive claims of Jesus, that Jesus made about himself cannot be discarded. Because they are our hope. Listen to this from another cultural sage. I'm taking one out of Ben Robertson's page. This is from Bono. 
He says this, you see, at the center of every religion is the idea of karma. You know, what you put, uh, put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics. In physical law, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And then he goes on. He says, and yet, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all of that, as you reap, so will you sow stuff. In other words, the idea of grace that is found in the person of Jesus Christ upends the whole idea of karma. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case is a very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going. If karma was finally going to judge me, I'd be in deep, well, he doesn't say do-do, but we'll go with that. Um, it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. See, Bono's declaring to us that he has found the reality is that there is a narrowness in every religion. Every claim, including the broad claims, actually has an exclusivity. It excludes someone. I mean, think about it this way. Even the ones that would be the broadest and claim that you know, all roads lead to the same place, how inclusive are they to those who would say, no, they don't? you would find yourself not particularly welcome, which is really interesting because the great religions of the world, Christianity, Hindu, uh, uh, Hebrew or Judaism and Islam, all make exclusive claims. Jesus is only in me. For those who believe in me, there is grace. And he invites everyone who struggles in life, not to become qualified, not to find a way that they can lower themselves to such an extent that they can crawl through an eye of a needle, but to look at that needle and say, I can't do it. God help. And whose eyes are open to Jesus, who is the way through. He is the true way. And he is the life once you get through. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the opportunity to consider the question. We thank you for all the teachings of Scripture and pray that you would be at work within us. Each of us must wrestle with this question is what you say about your son, what Jesus says about himself, is it too narrow? May we give thanks for the narrowness. And may you show us that the narrow way, the true way, is the grace way. Root us in this truth, Father. Free us from our striving. And enable us to rejoice in you. To praise your name for what you have done 
In Jesus. Amen. We come to this table to be reminded of the